0: Okay, Seven Mile Road today, we are going to try and change a common American saying. You see, in America, we have all kinds of sayings for all kinds of things. So, for example, to stress the importance of time, we say things like time is money, right? Or to highlight the importance of focus, we'll say keep your eye on the ball, right? We've got all kinds of sayings for all kinds of things. You might say that the sky is the limit. Or you might say to me now, quit beating around the bush, just make your point, right? We've got all kinds of sayings for all kinds of things. Well, what's the number one saying in America for handling worry? It goes, don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. That seems to be sort of the best we could come up with when we think about how we ought to deal with fear and anxiety and worry. And, and it's almost interesting advice, isn't it, right? Just don't worry about it, everything will be okay, it'll all work out. Don't worry, just be happy. Uh, It it makes for cute bumper stickers and and a sweet logo on a t-shirt, but it's hardly practical for real life, because then, real life comes. And you, you, you know, open up the paper, or you turn on the news, or you read the headlines on your computer screen, and you read of ISIS in the Middle East, or you read of Ebola in New York City, Right? Or even if those things seem far enough removed and not really a pressing and, and imminent danger for us, then you read something like this week, a, a 26-year-old man in an argument in his driveway with a 50-something-year-old man grabs an assault rifle and fires 28 rounds. That is that he fired, emptied his cartridge, reloaded, and fired again. And that happened two miles from my house three miles from this church, one mile from some of you. And at that point, the danger becomes not just some hypothetical thing out there, but pressing here. And and forget all of that. Then there's the stuff that doesn't make national headlines or nightly news, just the stuff of everyday normal life that you have, that I have, that we have, stuff like that you have decisions to make, deadlines to meet, exams to pass, mouths to feed, bills to pay, kids to send to college, and on and on and on the list goes. And in the face of all that, don't worry, just be happy. Seems like a good t-shirt, but hardly practical for real life. In fact, some of you would say, what else is there to do but worry? In fact, I'd imagine some of you are sitting here right now. And I'd imagine some of you right now itself This might be the hardest thing in the world, to try and concentrate. There's a part of you that so desperately wants to be all here and all present, but you can't help the fact that your mind is a million miles away. My dear wife has told me how many times she'll be here on a Sunday, and just the thought of guests coming to the home after service and lunch has been enough to just preoccupy her mind to the point that she cannot concentrate on this service, let alone the great many things that may be on your plate. Some of you right now would say, you've got a to-do list a mile long, and the thoughts of this week itself are enough to distract your mind in a million different places so that your body's here, but your mind is far from here, right? How many of us, if we're honest, would say anxiety and worry and stress and panic and turmoil and distress and overwhelmed would all be synonymous, synonyms that could describe our state of being. Some of you grew up in homes and backgrounds and parents where the entire atmosphere of your home, the oxygen you breathed was sort of panic at all times, this high red level alert at all times. You're always anxious. And how many of us w- would say that if we're honest, we would love for our, wa- our lives to be described with different words. We wish there were words like peace, Calm, tranquility, faith, security, composure, right? So many of us in a heartbeat wish we could trade one for the other. And in the midst of all of that, saying don't worry about it is probably as helpful and practical and useful as, as me telling you right now, don't think about pink elephants. Whatever you do, said road, don't think about pink elephants. How many of you thought about pink elephants, right? Don't worry about it. Slapping a somewhat smile on this thing hardly seems like real life help in the midst of this. And so if you're here and you wish that your life was marked by peace and calm and composure and tranquility and faith, then you desperately, I desperately need to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. This is the passage that Jesse read for us. And you and I need to hear what Jesus has to say about worry. So there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Would you grab that? Turn to Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament, chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. While you turn there, let me just take a moment and pray, and we'll ask God for his help as we read and consider his word. Our Father, we pray now that you would open us to your word and open your word to us. We pray that we would read the word and the word would read us. We would examine this word and this word would examine us. We would find that just as much as we're looking at it, it turns us over and is looking at us. Examine us, O Lord. Reveal to us through this word what's going on in our hearts. And pray that even today you would begin to free us from the grip of worry and move us into the place of faith. This the Spirit can do to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, now where are we in the Sermon on the Mount? We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus has been preaching. And right now we find ourselves in chapter 6, which is sort of the middle meat of the sermon. Chapter 5 is introducing the sermon. Chapter 7 is going to end the sermon. We're in the middle meaty section of chapter 6. And in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, that first section of chapter 6, we watched as Jesus told his disciples Are you my disciples? Are you my followers? Are you my citizens of my kingdom that I've come to bring on the earth? Well, then you are not to be like the religious phonies in the church. Right? That was 1 through 18. I don't want you to think that being my disciple equals being a religious hypocrite in the church. And if you remember, he talked through praying and giving and fasting. Right? I I don't want you to do those things like the religious phonies do. But now, in 6 verse 19 to 34... Jesus turns to the other side and says, but nor do I want you to be like the unbelievers in the secular world. I don't want you to be like religious phonies in the church, but nor do I want you to be like unbelievers in the world. Right? These guys pray and fast and give the wrong way, but these guys on this side are focused on a different set of things. What we will eat and what we will drink and what we will wear. You see, they're consumed with this obsession with material stuff, and you ought not swing to the other side where now your life is marked by an obsession with those things. Right? One commentator called this the, the holy trinity of the secular world. Right? This, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And if you think that's a stretch, go to a magazine, any of them, and flip through the pages and tell me what you won't see except what you should eat and what you should drink And what you should wear. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, I'm not asking you to be like the religious folks, nor am I asking you to be like the secular folks. You've got to be something completely other. My kingdom people, my citizens, it's going to look different than the hypocrites in the church or the unbelievers in the world. And if you're not going to swing to the other side, where you're just going to be obsessed with what everyone else in the world is obsessed with, your life is going to look different. Right? In fact, in verses 19 and following, what Pastor Benu preached for us last week, we heard Jesus say, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Right? Jesus is saying, you're going to value something different. You're going to be about something different if you're my citizen in my kingdom. Right? Pastor Binu gave us that wonderful illustration last week of, of that landfill. Right? Remember, your treasure this moment is gonna end up as tomorrow's trash. That's what it is. Right? Nothing is permanent. Everything's gonna wear out or be stolen or, or taken away. And so don't you be marked by a life that is this endless pursuit to accumulate stuff. Right? There's only two ways to go about it. You're either going to lay up treasures on earth or you're going to lay up treasures in heaven. You're either going to serve mammon, or you're going to serve God. And if you're my citizen, you are the people who have chosen, decided that you're going to choose God and his kingdom over mammon and stuff. And if that is true of you, then your life ought not be marked by the anxiety that is marked by those who are in this endless pursuit to accumulate stuff. If you're valuing something different, then your attitude also necessarily must be different since you're not living for the endless accumulation of stuff. Therefore, you ought not to be marked by worry. In fact, that's what he says. Look at verse 25. Therefore, in light of everything we've said, therefore, I tell you, right? And this is good. I tell you. This is not a pastor who tells you. This is not a church program or religious thought for you. Jesus himself is speaking to you. So hear this as Jesus to you. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. So here's what Jesus is going to say. He's going to give us an alternative to worry. He's going to tell us what we ought to do rather than worry. Forget, don't worry, be happy. Jesus is going to give you a better alternative. But before you get there, he's going to at least start by telling you why you ought to stop worrying. Before he tells you what to do in place of worry, he's going to at least start by saying why you should stop worrying. And Jesus is going to say, stop worrying because worrying is useless. I want you to at least hear this. Before I tell you what you ought to do instead of worrying, at least you should know you should stop worrying because worrying is useless. Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Hear that. You should stop worrying because which of you, by being anxious or by worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life? And the answer to that, of course, would be no one, right? Here's what Jesus is saying. That phrase there, single hour to his span of life, in the original language, in the Greek that Matthew would have written this out, is either a unit of measurement of time or of distance right, it's either a single hour to the length of your life or sort of like a a single inch to your stature, to your height. So here's what Jesus is saying, which of you with all your anxiety and all your fretfulness and all your concern and all your worry can add a single hour to the span of your life? That'd be like if I said to you tomorrow, I'm going to just stare at my watch, right? How many of you haven't been at the place where you go, there just aren't enough hours in the day? You get to the end of the week, there just hasn't been enough hours, you have so much to get done. What if I told you, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to stare at this until I get an hour. Yeah, you'd chuckle for about two seconds before it got awkward and weird, and you'd go, stop it, stupid, right? Life doesn't work that way, you can't do that. that, that's futile, that's an exercise in futility, it doesn't work that way. It accomplishes nothing, no more than worry. Right, I I can't make an hour appear. And yet, from the perspective of God, from Jesus, who's asking you this, it's almost as if, do you realize who's talking? God is saying, God, that is, the one who is outside of time. The one for whom there was no beginning because time didn't exist. So there's no beginning. The one to whom there's no end. The one who created time, the one who, for God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. And that God is asking you, wait, wait, for me, who is outside of time, who created time, a thousand years is like a day, a day, a thousand years, you can't add an hour to your life? Well, if you can't pull something that small off, then why do you worry like you can handle the rest? You can't add 60 minutes, then why do you get anxious as if you could run the rest? Or or he's saying this, which of you by being anxious could add a single cubit, uh, a single inch to your stature? That'd be like tomorrow, me standing in front of the mirror and saying, I'm not moving until I grow. I am five foot six, which is the average height of an Indian woman. (laughs) You don't think I would have tried that if that worked? But one of you would come to me and say, stop it, stupid. Life doesn't work that way, right? That's an exercise in futility. And and yet from the perspective of heaven and God, the one who created the mountains miles high and the oceans miles deep and the universe so far vast and wide that we don't even have numbers to compute, you can't add an inch to your stature. If you can't pull that off, why do you worry as if you could handle the rest? See, from the perspective of God, he's saying, basically what Jesus is saying is quit torturing yourself. Worry accomplishes nothing. It it profits no one. It gains nothing. You see, what, what Jesus is letting you in on is the secret that deep down we probably know, but we live in an illusion. It's that you're not in control of your life. You can't add an hour to your life. You can't add an inch to your height. As much as everything in our culture wires you to believe, to the contrary, the truth is you're not in control of your life. You never were. And I know for some of us type A control freaks, that is the scariest thing you could hear. You are now trying to control your lack of control. You're trying to figure out how am I going to control the fact that I don't have control. For some of you, you have Excel spreadsheeted your life. You knew when you were going to get married and who you're going to marry and how many kids you're going to have, and when you're going to retire, and where you're going to move. And hear me, Jesus is coming to you and giving you good news. You are wonderfully out of control of your life. Wonderfully out of control of your life. You don't control a thing. And sometimes it takes a pink slip or a doctor's visit or an unexpected lawsuit or this, that, or the other, for you to finally wake up to the reality. I have no control of my life. So Jesus is helping you and saying, quit torturing yourself. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you can't do that, then don't worry, because worry is useless. It accomplishes nothing. It profits no one. It gains nothing. And yet, it costs you so much accomplishes nothing, gains nothing, but costs you so much, costs you. you. You know what worry does, not just in your brain. It doesn't just stay tucked into your mind. It spills out into the rest of your being. You sweat, your heart races, your hair falls, your hair turns gray. There's things that happen in your body. I mean, you just have to walk down the pharmacy aisle to know how much we try and deal with anxiety and worry. So Jesus begins by saying, don't worry because worry is useless. But maybe you say to me, okay, Ajay, worry is useless. Fine, I could have told you that. But what about my needs? I still have bills to pay and mouths to feed and decisions to make and clothes to buy and children to send to college and all the rest. What other option is there? What else should I do then? Well, the Jesus wants to tell you, here it is. Don't worry, but fight for faith. Have faith. Now, hear me. I know that initially that can sound as glib and impractical as don't worry, be happy. Right? But I want you to hear Jesus gives in this passage some good reasons why you should fight for faith. Here's the first one. Don't worry, but fight for faith because God knows your needs. And I, and I worded this carefully carefully fight for faith, as if to highlight to you, this is not just some religious thing we turn on. Oh, I turned off worry, I turn on faith, no problem. No, this is the fight for faith. That is, God, everything in my being doesn't trust right now. Would you please help me to believe? Right, that, that fight, that, that sweaty, earnest fight for faith. Jesus first starts by saying, instead of worry... Fight for faith because God knows your needs. Now hear this in verse 32. At the end of 32, he says, Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear because your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Did you catch that? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So he's saying, My citizens, the disciples of my kingdom, ought not be characterized by the anxiety that you find in the world because they know that they have a heavenly Father who knows their needs. It should make a difference to you, Christian, that you have a heavenly Father who knows your needs. Fight for faith because God knows your needs. And he gives you two illustrations to highlight this for you. Look at verse 26 and 28. 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And then verse 28. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now here's what Jesus is saying. Don't worry, but fight for faith because God knows your needs. And he gives you two illustrations to highlight this for you. He says, first, look at the birds. Let the birds be preachers to you today. Right? So you go outside. Go bird watching because they will preach a wonderful sermon to you. What's the sermon they're going to tell you? Watch how they don't sow seed. They don't reap at harvest time. They don't gather everything and build barns. And yet, your heavenly Father... Them Now, Jesus' point isn't, so go from here and don't worry about work because God will take care of all of that. That would be foolish. You deserve to be hungry, right? Because he, here's the point. You've never seen a robin sitting on a branch just with its mouth open to the heavens hoping a worm will be dropped in. No, if you look at the birds, if you watch them, you will find that they're busy, they're at work, they're building, they're scratching, they're searching, they're digging, they're feeding, they're at great activity. And yet the point is, at the end of the day, the Creator provides for them. In fact, Luke's gospel, when he's telling the same story that Matthew does, he inserts a detail that Jesus said. In fact, he he doesn't just say birds, he says, look at the ravens right? Now, raven at that day would have been the most unclean bird. The raven was like the ugliest bird you could find. So, so Jesus doesn't, in this passage, say, look at the majestic eagle or the beautiful dove. He picks the ugliest, nastiest bird you could find. In fact, I googled it, so I want you to see a picture of the raven. <laughs> One pastor called that the rat with wings, right? And, and Jesus' point is, if God feeds that Right, And then I got carried away, so I googled ugly birds. So would you, <laughs> look at that. I didn't make that up, by the way. That's real. Or there's one more. He deserved a slide all his own. <laughs> right? That is a Sri Lankan frogmouth bird. If they had science like we do today, Jesus would have said, look at the Sri Lankan frogmouth bird. If your heavenly father feeds that, will he not feed you? And that's his point. If God can care for the pet rat with wings, will he not feed you? Which dad feeds the pet rat but forgets to feed his son? If if the birds can trust that their creator will provide, then how much more should children trust that their heavenly father provides? And that's also the distinction. Do you hear that? You see, the the bird at the end of the day goes, God is my creator. But a bird wasn't created in the image and likeness of God. You call the one in heaven not just your creator, you call him father, because you were made in his spitting image. You were made in the image and likeness of God. And so if the bird can trust the creator to provide, cannot his children trust that he will feed us? He then says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And here's Jesus' point. Have you ever considered a a field of lilies, a field of flowers? They don't wake up and and sew their clothes on. They don't sit in front of a mirror and put on their appearance. And yet Jesus' point is, the simplest field, would take your breath away more than if you saw Solomon decked out in everything he owned. But, but here's the point he's making. But do you know what happens in those days to those fields? In those days, what you did was you needed to bake your daily bread. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Well, daily bread came how? You mowed down the field, and you grabbed the flowers and the lilies and the grass. You threw it into the oven, and you baked your daily bread. And here's Jesus' point. If God is considerate and mindful to make sure that the weeds that end up as fuel for the furnace does not grow naked, will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? If he has been considerate to clothe in the most brilliant beauty the weeds that will be fuel for the fire, Do you think that he has forgotten about you, O you of little faith? Jesus is saying, fight for faith. Don't worry, but fight for faith because God knows your needs. And the one who feeds the ravens and clothes the lilies is aware of what you need. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But here's the second reason. Second, fight for faith. Don't worry, but fight for faith because you... Know God. Not only is it fight for faith because God knows your needs, but second, fight for faith because you know God. Right? Look at verse 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that is, aka the unbelieving world, aka the people who don't know God, for the Gentiles seek after these things and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What Jesus is saying is, believing in God ought to make a difference. You're not like the world that doesn't know God. You know God that ought to make a difference. You're not like the Gentiles, the unbelieving world. Here's the point. If if your blood pressure rises and falls with the stock market like everyone else does, then what difference is there about you? What difference comes from the fact that you know God? If your response to Ebola and ISIS and the shooting in Busselton is the same panic and dread and fear as the rest of the world, what difference is there that you know God? If the unbelieving coworker cannot see any difference in your level of anxiety or worry, What difference comes there from you knowing God? You see, what's underneath our worry is what Jesus has already said, oh, you of little faith. See, underneath my worry is a layer of little faith. What worry exposes is that deep down in the parts that I don't even want to go down enough to see, there's a layer of little faith that just has the hardest time trusting God. Right? What... What worry does is it exposes the little faith that's deep down there. Hear me. A a recession doesn't cause worry. A pink slip doesn't cause worry. And a doctor's visit doesn't cause worry. What that does is bump you so that what's in your hearts comes to the top. What that does is bump your hearts so that either faith or worry surfaces. And when worry does surface, there is the fight of faith. Because I know God, and that ought to make a difference. You see, deep down, what's underneath worry is the heart of worry is I don't really know the Father's heart. I don't really trust the Father. Deep down, I've got this layer of little faith which has the hardest time believing he's for me. Or deep down, I've got this thought that he's really stingy. And what I'm trying to do is somehow pry open his hands to somehow be good to me. Because deep down, I just don't trust that he's out for me. That's the heart of worry. It's that you don't know well your father. Let me give you an example. It's a, a dumb example. My examples are always dumb. I was in elementary school, and I remember that in elementary school, there was this school fair for two days, and this outside organization came and set up shop in the auditorium. And so this thing was like, it was like Christmas exploded in the auditorium toys, and trinkets, and gadgets, and everything you could want. And they'd line up us greedy children and send us into the auditorium. And so it was two days. So I went in the first day, and kids were just running everywhere to everything they could possibly want. And I'm looking and looking, and there across the room, there it was. A shiny red gumball machine. Okay, Now this thing was perfect. It was, it was this perfect fire engine red. This perfect sphere that housed these perfect gumballs. Right, and I could I could almost hear like ah as I was going to it like a stream of light came down on this gumball machine, and I walk close I like glide to it, and underneath is this small sign that says seventy five cents. Now, I'm in grade school and I'm smart enough to know what seventy five cents is. Seventy five cents is three shiny quarters this big, so I go home with a speech ready to tell my parents why I need three shiny silver quarters. Now. Here's the thing about my parents, my parents, are, uh, my parents are Indian, which means they don't buy gumball machines. Uh, it means they don't buy anything. The toys I grew up with was World Book Encyclopedia, Volumes 1 to 26, right? I, I kid you not, by the time you got PlayStation, I finally got Nintendo, right? Not Nintendo 64, just regular old Mario Brothers Nintendo, right? There was no way my cheap, stingy parents were ever going to give me three quarters. So I made my case, and there it was, and I went to school the next day. There we have the fair again. And so we go down, and everyone goes, and there it is, across the room, still light from heaven flowing on it. And I go to it, and I reach into my lunch bag, and I know what I'm looking for, three shiny silver quarters. I reach in, I pull it out, and I go home so disappointed, so angry, going home with a dollar bill in my hand, and I go to my parents and I go, I needed three quarters, and you wouldn't give it to me, right? Just fuming mad. I am almost positive I got beat that day, right? right? And I'm sure one of them said, you foolish boy. Right now, hear me. I'm a, I'm a dumb second grader. I get that. And yet, you and I go that same way to God all the time. We go to God, the Father who has broken the bank on us. The Father who has spent the most priceless thing he had to spend. Who literally gave till he had nothing left to give. Gave you the thing of most worth and value. He spilt the blood of his own son for you. And we go, but you didn't think about rent. Who paid every debt of my sin from when I was a boy till now until I die. And yet I don't think that I can trust him for mortgage. Who gave and gave till he had nothing left to give. He has given more than I knew to ask for. More than I needed. And yet I can't trust him for the smallest thing. You see, Jesus came from heaven as the bread of life. And yet we go, what shall we eat? Jesus came as the living water. Whoever drinks of him will never thirst again. And we go, but what shall we drink? Those who are in Christ are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we go, but what shall we wear? And I think Jesus is holding this out before you and saying, if the one who did not spare his son, will he not give you graciously all things that you need? If he can be trusted to pay down the debt of your sin, do you really think he's forgotten about rent? And Jesus is saying, you can stop worrying and fight for faith because you know God. You know the heart of this God. You know what he's like. And when you get that, you can do what Jesus says at the end here. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You see, here's, the, here's what Jesus is saying. If you're a citizen of my kingdom, and you're not going to be in this endless pursuit for the accumulation of stuff, and you're not going to be marked by the anxiety that comes with this endless preoccupation with stuff, then you can be freed to seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Right? Seek first. That is, you're going to live for the rule and reign of Jesus. You're going to live under that reign. You're going to live for that reign. That's going to be your primary preoccupation. And your life is not going to be categorized by this endless anxiety. And all these things will be added to you. Now, hear me. We don't want to just shout out cliches. Because I think if you're thinking, you're going, wait. But haven't there been Christians who have gone hungry? Haven't there been Christians who have been put naked? Haven't there been Christians who have been in want? Right? We don't want to throw out a cliche. Yet, what's he saying? As your life is not characterized by worry, but by faith. You can seek first the kingdom. That is the rule and reign of God. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Your name be hallowed. I'm going to live with that in focus. And the point is God will give you everything you need to get that done. Right? Paul says, "Shall, shall famine separate us or nakedness separate us from the love of God. And the implication is there may be times of famine and nakedness. But for the disciple who has already finished praying, your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. That means that God will give you everything you need to accomplish His will and to glorify His name. And so if what will hallow the name of God is some leanness of food or want for clothes, then I will trust God will give everything I need to live for His kingdom, to live for the rule of Jesus over my life and on display to the world. Everything you need to do His will, to live for His glory, To make his name renowned, he will give. And if that's the case, then you don't need to worry. So where is your heart this morning? Hear me, precious saint at Seven Mile Road, where is your heart this morning? If this morning itself you find the seeds of anxiety there, Jesus is not here to condemn you. In fact, do you see how he ends the passage? Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He's not just painting a pretty picture on this. He's saying, look, each day will bring trouble. And so there's no need to worry for tomorrow in such a way that it robs your joy and faith today. Yeah. Right? I, I know that there will be come things coming. Right? Who knows what this year will bring? Whether this year will bring death. Whether this year will bring sorrow. Whether this year will bring hardship. But what we know is when we get there, God will be there. Yeah. But where I am is today. And today, God is here. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow. And today, Jesus is saying, fight for faith. Amen. Fight for faith because worrying is useless. Amen. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Worrying is useless, but fight for faith because God knows your needs. The one who feeds the ravens and clothes the lilies knows your needs. And because you know God, your heavenly Father, your heavenly father, you know what his heart has been like. And if you've grown foggy about that, look again today at the cross and see what the love of God for you is like. So then don't worry, but fight for faith, because God knows your needs and you know God. Let's pray. Our Lord, this passage started with, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. We pray, O Lord, that your people have heard from Jesus. What we need now is not the word of man. We need Jesus himself speaking to us. I pray for every brother and sister here, the one for whom right now itself there is looming large in their mind a care and anxiety so great they have no idea how to lay it down. Jesus himself, would you come and whisper in their ear, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Would you yourself come and minister by the Spirit to remind us that our Father in heaven knows our needs. He will not feed ravens, clothe lilies, and forget about us. Would you remind us of your tender care, your constant provision. Would you come and remind us that we know you. We know what you're like. And in case we've grown or forgotten, would you show us again Jesus on the cross and remind us of the love of God, the provision of God, and how you have given more than we knew to ask. Come console us by your word, comfort us by your word, encourage us by your word, instruct us by your word, feed us by your word, provide for us by your word. Do this and more, we ask and pray in Jesus' name.